probably you're familiar with that scene from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the Christmas classic. George Bailey, the town banker, is at the end of his rope. His bank is caught up in financial scandal and his family's livelihood is at stake. Uh, Desperate, he goes to a bar to drink and pray. (laughs) He's not a praying man, but desperate times lead him to ask the heavens for help. However, a nearby patron overhears his name and clocks him in the face for misspeaking to his wife earlier. That's what I get for praying, George says, drunk. Now, of course, if you know the movie, you know that George Bailey's prayers did not go unanswered. He meets a frumpy angel named Clarence. Clarence shows him what uh, his life would have looked like if he had never been born. And the town actually rallies to George's aid to cover his debt to the bank. They all live happily ever after, and a Christmas classic is born. Now, It's a Wonderful Life is not a deeply theological film. Don't measure theology of angels, providence, or prayer on the movie, to be sure. But I I do like this scene as it introduces some of the the difficulties and and the complicated emotions that we have when it comes to praying. How many times have we humbled ourselves before God, asked for help and guidance, only to see things get worse? How many times have we said, well, that's what I get for praying? But how many times have we also seen the Lord come through in some surprising ways? Maybe not an angel named Clarence, but some other such means of deliverance. Prayer is a complicated topic. It raises all sorts of difficult questions. I mean, does God answer prayer? How? Uh, and, And how should we pray in the first place? These are some of the questions that I want to talk about with you this morning, not just because they're important, and they are, but also because they are next in our study on the book of James. We've been studying the book of James here at Rooftop in our fall series. It's called Wise Guy. Uh, James is a, a book of wisdom, small book of wisdom in the New Testament that was likely written by the half-brother of Jesus. And the purpose of the book is to challenge us to live lives of radical obedience to Jesus. It's just not enough, says James, to call yourself a Christian, to, 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 to identify as a Christian, to go to church. To be a follower of Jesus means to actually do, to radical extremes, what God gives us to do. It means to, to be generous, It means to avoid favoritism. It means to care for widows and orphans. It means to be kind and encouraging, to be truthful with our mouths. And to be a follower of Jesus also means to pray. That's what James says in one of the last sections of the book. So let me go ahead and read you our passage for the morning. It comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, he was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. 
Now, simply put, this is a passage on prayer. According to James, prayer is another thing that Christians need to do. It's not something we should say we do, or it's not something we should think about doing. Christians should pray. I really don't want to say it like that, though. You see, preachers like me are really good at making congregations like you feel bad for not being more religious. Y'all should be praying more people, people like me say. Christians are really good in general at shooting on themselves. It's a double meaning. But should and guilt and obligation are not good motivators to pray. That is the wrong way to look at this. You see, prayer isn't something we should do. Prayer isn't something that we have to do. Paradigm shift here. Prayer is something we get to do. Prayer is something we have the privilege to do. I mean, what is prayer? Prayer is communicating with the creator of the universe in an intimate way. Prayer is the opportunity to involve the Lord of heaven and earth in our lives and in our world. Prayer is talking with God to get insight about our loved ones. That's what prayer is. Prayer is talking with the creator God about important things. That's what prayer is. And that's not something we should do. That's something we get to do. I mean, nobody views the chance to talk to the President of the United States as a burden. Oh, no, I've got to go talk to the most powerful person in the world today. No, it's the greatest opportunity to talk with the leader of the free world. How much more of an opportunity to talk to God is it at any moment of the day? Prayer is a privilege. Most people actually understand this. They understand this about prayer. In fact, most people pray. In a Barna survey from a few years ago, 2017, Americans were asked about their prayer habits. According to the data, prayer is the most common religious practice of Americans. 79% of Americans have prayed at least once in the past three months. Now, I know that's a fairly low bar. <laughs> if you prayed like once in, oh, I don't know, let's say the past three months. Yeah, I've done that. But even with that fairly low bar, that's a higher percentage of Americans than go to church, that uh, read the Bible, or give to charity. So prayer, even at that low bar, is the most common religious activity. In fact, more people in this country pray than vote or speak English. Prayer is one of the most natural and common things that people do. People in every culture, every language, every era, every age group pray. That's always been the case. Humanity is a praying species. We always have been. Babies practically learn how to pray to God without even being taught to do it by their parents. To be a human being is to pray. But just because most people pray doesn't mean we know what we're doing. I mean, most people drive. Does that mean that most people know what they're doing on the roadways? No, clearly not. Most people eat. Does that mean we know how to eat? Well, we actually do know how to eat well. We just don't. Same with prayer. Just because most people pray doesn't mean that people know how to do it. In fact, if you look into those statistics a little bit, if you dig down into the numbers, you realize that most people are praying with about as much expertise as like an 18-month-old child is using proper grammar. I mean, people pray, sure, but according to the stats, they pray very, as we've seen, infrequently, like once every three months. Uh, They pray very selfishly. Most common prayer requests are for parking spots and sports team victories. 
And a surprisingly high number of people don't even know to whom they're praying. They just pray to some generic God. Uh, But people also pray to the saints. They pray to their ancestors. They pray to the universe. I have a, a, a loved one in my family who prays to the universe. There's even a certain percentage of atheists who say they pray, even though they don't believe in the God to whom they pray. I don't get that, but you know, you do you. <laughs> so just because people pray doesn't mean they know how to do it. Honestly, maybe this describes you. I mean, you're here in church, in case you weren't sure where you are. You're here in church. You, you probably like to pray, or you probably like intend to pray. You probably at least feel like a responsibility to pray. D- so desire, intention is not the problem. Maybe the problem is that you just don't know how to do it. If that's the case, you're not alone. No guilt. We are all in the same boat here. Me too. I mean, I'm a professional Christian. I pray all the time, and I still don't even know if I'm doing it right. I do a lot of guesswork in prayer. Like, okay, try this. Even Jesus' disciples, even Jesus' disciples admitted they didn't really know how to pray. I remember, remember what they asked Jesus in the gospel. They say, Lord, you seem like you know what you're doing here. Teach us to pray. I mean, these were guys, guys who grew up praying in Hebrew. And they had the humility to admit to Jesus that they didn't know what they were doing. We could all, therefore, probably use some instruction on prayer. Prayer might be natural, but praying well is not. And this is why James' words are so important to us. Here in these few verses, he gives us a short primer on prayer. Primer is like an introduction. Primer on prayer. He gives us five manners by which we can pray. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning, how we can pray. Not how should we pray. I don't want to heap guilt on. Enough of that has been done already. How can we pray? So how can we pray? Well, we can pray always. We can pray all together. We can pray authentically. We can pray authoritatively. And we can pray ardently. This morning's message is brought to you by the letter A. So let me spend a moment on each. First, we can pray always. James starts his passage thus. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray. James' point here is obvious. His point is that there are no circumstances in which prayer is inappropriate in your life. We can pray always. If we're troubled, we can pray. If we're sick, we can pray. If we're happy, we can pray. I actually like that last one a lot. We can pray if we're happy. There's nothing more inappropriate in the world. I remember I was hanging out with some friends years ago in college. We were having a great time just socializing and being together. We were singing songs. It had been a while, and we were just back together, and we were just filled with such joy. And, and my friend, Nate, uh, he actually interrupted the fun. He interrupted, he had the nerve to interrupt the fun. And he said, hey, everybody, I'm so happy to be together with you right now. I know this is cheesy, but can we sing a song of thanks to God who made it happen? It was the hokiest moment you could imagine. <laughs> but so meaningful and so right. Why? Because Nate didn't want us to take the moment for granted. God had given us this moment to be together, so we decided to thank him for it. There is no situation in your life in which it is inappropriate to pray. Why is that true? Why is it true that there is no situation in your life in which it is inappropriate to pray? Because prayer isn't like prayer. Prayer is conversation with your Father in heaven. And can you think of any circumstances in your life that your Father in heaven is not interested in? He's interested in every part of you, every moment of your day. 
He wants to talk to you about all of it. Pray always. Also, pray all together. James describes prayer here in a very communal way. In his mind, prayer is something best done together. He says, call the elders of the church, leaders of the church, to pray over them, he writes. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other, he says. This is not how most Americans pray, though, together. In that survey that I told you about, to the question, how do you most often pray, uh, 82% of Americans said, I pray silently by myself. 13% audibly by myself. Only 2% say audibly with somebody else or audibly with another church. So like every other aspect of our lives, Americans view prayer as a solitary activity. Why? We're Americans. Independence, privacy, Two of our founding values. What happens in the bedroom? What happens in the prayer closet? My business. Get your hands off my prayer closet. But also, prayer, you know this, prayer can be an inherently vulnerable activity. I mean, it can feel silly. Anybody else just feel silly? Bowing your head and praying to an invisible being in front of other people? Yeah, the prayer can make you feel silly. Like, okay, I mean, remember the scene from It's a Wonderful Life? I mean, George Bailey sitting there at the bar crying and praying. And what does the bartender do? Hey, George, can I get someone to take you home? (laughs) This isn't part of my bartender training. You're embarrassing us. Now, of course, I'm not saying we can't pray by ourselves. Jesus says sometimes we absolutely should. But the norm for us should be joining together with one another in prayer. When when we pray together, however clumsily or awkwardly we do that, when we do that, we remind ourselves and we let God know, we remind ourselves that we are in this together. We are a family who is responsible for each other. I tell this to struggling married couples all the time. I mean, fixing a broken marriage takes years of therapy and hard work. But I always tell couples that if they're really serious, if they're really serious about getting on the right track, you know what you're going to do? You're going to hold hands regularly, you're going to bow your heads, and you're going to together ask God for help. Because you are up against forces that you cannot tackle on your own. You together need to ask God to bless you with the strength you need. You might pray. When's the last time you prayed with someone? Out loud. When's the last time you and your spouse or fiancé had held hands and prayed? When's the last time you called up a friend and prayed on the phone? When's the last time you volunteered to pray out loud in a small group? That's what it means to be part of a praying church, though. It means to be part of a praying community. Pray always. Pray all together. Thirdly, pray authentically. James says, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so you may be healed. Prayer is our opportunity to be ourselves before God. There is nothing in our lives, right? There's nothing in our lives that God does not know. There's nothing in our lives that God does not know. But prayer is our chance to come clean before him and before each other so that we can be healed and be forgiven. That's what James says. If they have sinned, if you pray for them, they will be forgiven. One of the more interesting things about this passage here is that James acknowledges that sickness... Sickness can be the result of unconfessed sin in our lives. What does it just say? Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed of your sickness. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. You see, in the Bible, there's a relationship 
between illness and sin. Now, I am not saying that illness is always the result of sin. Jesus repudiates such simplistic theology, but there is a connection. There is a connection between what's going on in our bodies and what's going on in our spirits, our minds, our hearts. I know a man, for example, he doesn't go here, he doesn't even live around here, but he had, for the longest time, a terrible pornography addiction. He didn't get the help he needed, and his porn addiction just lingered. It caused massive shame and marriage problems. He never really addressed it. Finally, he called me up one day, and he told me that he had some terrible news. He told me that he had testicular cancer. He had to do chemotherapy, radiation. He had to have a testicle removed. He had to take drugs the rest of his life. Now, I don't know about these things. I I really don't. But inasmuch as I can see God working, it seems like the Lord of heaven and earth had looked down on his life and said, I have had enough. And we're going to take care of this problem one way or another. For what it's worth, my friend thought the same thing. He had a deep suspicion in his heart that he had only himself to blame. For cancer. Am I sure of that? No. But I don't doubt. I don't doubt that there are physical consequences to our sinful choices. I mean, obesity can be the result of food worship. STDs can be the result of sexual immorality. Heart disease can be the result of unhealthy living. Now, I don't say these things to judge anybody. I'm just making the point that James is making. That some of us are sick because there is sin in our lives. And... In prayer, God is offering us a way out. Not just prayer, though. Authentic prayer. Confess your sins so you may be healed and forgiven, James writes. That's why we all need someone in our lives that we can be honest about what's really going on. Someone who can pray for us. I mean, I have a prayer partner, for example, that I can tell anything. And I've promised myself I will tell him anything. I don't want to walk around with the burden of sin on my shoulders. Who wants to live like that? Do you have someone that you can be authentic with? Do you have someone who can pray for what you're really dealing with? If you don't, you need someone. Maybe it's your small small group leader. Maybe it's a ministry team leader. Maybe, Maybe it's your brother or sister. If you don't, though, if you don't have anybody that you can be honest with and anybody who will pray for you, call me. Call me. What good is a pastor if he can't hear your confession and pray for you? Call me. I will listen to you. I'll pray for you. I won't judge you. I'll just listen and pray. I might offer a couple words of advice and wisdom, but they will be minimal. (laughs) Call me. Pray always, all together, authentically. Also, we can pray authoritatively. James writes in verses 14 and 15, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders, the leaders of the church, to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. This is an important verse. We can talk about this verse all day. Uh, First, you might wonder what this reference to oil is. Anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. There's actually a lot of debate over oil in the role of prayer. Was the oil like medicinal? used for healing purposes, or was it more symbolic? It was, frankly, probably pretty symbolic. Back then, oil symbolized blessing. 
That's why a lot of religious traditions still use oil in prayer. I actually have a, a, a friend uh, who walks around with a flask of oil in his pocket just in case he's ever in a situation where someone needs the oil. I always know if I'm with Kyle and somebody needs prayer, I got the oil, so he's ready. But the more remarkable verse here, I think, is verse 15. James says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Let me say that again. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. So James is telling us this to communicate what sort of confidence, even authority, that we can pray with. We can pray with confidence that God will hear our prayers and heal. Now, if you're like me, and you know this about me, you wonder how that can be true. Is it really true that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well? I mean, does it really happen like that? Sometimes, yes, I'm sure. Sometimes, no. I mean, we all know situations where we prayed with faith and God didn't do what we asked for. What are we to conclude? What are we to conclude when we pray with faith that God will heal our loved ones as James and other authors of scripture insist, and he doesn't. What do we conclude? What went wrong? Well, logically, we are left to conclude one of the few things. First, we might conclude that we didn't do it the right way. Maybe we didn't pray with enough faith. People actually figure this. They figure that, you know, they didn't pray the right way. Maybe they should have had more faith. Maybe they should have used more oil. Maybe they skimped at the oil store. Oh, man, I got the cheap stuff. That's one thing we conclude, but that doesn't make any sense. I mean, is God really that picky? I didn't do it the right way. Got the wrong oil. I was this close to healing your loved one, but then I saw, like, the brand of the oil that you got. No, I'm going to do it. Some of us, on the other hand, conclude that maybe God answered our prayer, just not in a way we were hoping. Maybe God said no. Or maybe God will raise them up eventually after death. Maybe God's going to answer this prayer like really far down the line. They sort of reinterpret the promise. So the Lord will raise him up like eventually after they're dead. But that doesn't make any sense either. James says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That promise seems pretty clear. Ironclad even. So what else might we conclude? Well, some people actually conclude that James is wrong. Or out of date. So lots of people actually draw this conclusion. They conclude, they figure that the Bible just can't be trusted on prayer. People actually lose their faith because of verses like this. Even some really smart theologians, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, conclude that this promise in James is just not true anymore. It was true in Bible times, but not anymore. God doesn't heal people through prayer anymore, at least not with the level of certainty that James seems to be implying. So which is it? Are we doing it wrong? Are we misreading what James is saying? Or is James just wrong or out of date? Ever wondered? Well, maybe those aren't our only options. I mean, here's the thing. James, not an idiot. He knows that we don't always get what we ask God for in prayer. The Apostle Paul made very similar assurances about prayer, but he himself was turned down by God repeatedly. Jesus! made the ultimate promises about prayer, and he didn't get everything he asked for. He asked to be rescued from death, and God basically said no. 
Everybody in the Bible who says that God has the power to heal through prayer will also tell you, based on personal experience, that God doesn't always do that. So to turn this verse into some blanket promise that God will heal everybody we pray for is frankly really naive. But then what is James saying? Well, his point here is really simple. His point is that sickness is nothing to God. Disease is nothing to God. God has the power to heal, but we shouldn't expect that he will unless we pray. That's James' point. Not that God will absolutely answer all our prayers, but that he can if we pray. God has given us that authority, that power in prayer. So I know you might feel burdened by prayer. Trust me, I get it. I have watched God not heal people in my life so many times, I'm surprised I still find myself praying. But I've never been under delusion that God is obligated to answer every single one of my prayers. That would be terrible, by the way, if God answered every single one of my prayers. The world would be a mess. It's like that scene in Bruce Almighty when God gives Bruce like the power to answer all the prayers and he says yes to everybody and the world falls apart. <laughs> It would be a terrible thing if God answered all our prayers, yes. I understand that. But I also know that I will never know God's power to heal through prayer unless I keep praying. So what do I do? I keep praying. As much as I can, I pray with confidence. I pray with authority, knowing that if and when God decides to heal through my prayers by his power, he will. I have that authority. So do you. Pray with authority. Tell God what you want. Tell God what you need. If he wants to do it by his power, he can and he will. But according to James, he won't unless we ask. Pray with authority. And lastly, pray ardently. Ardently means passionately, enthusiastically. Best I could do with the letter A. Ardently is, is how Elijah prayed. So in the last paragraph of this passage, James illustrates what prayer can look like by invoking an Old Testament prophet. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, he writes. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, there's a couple little tidbits that I want to mention out, mention to you before we finish. First, James says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. The emphasis is not on the fact that Elijah was a great and powerful prophet. I mean, a lot of times that's how we read the Bible, right? We think, oh, you know, we'll never be like these great men and women of faith. We'll never have their power. But James says the exact opposite. No, Elijah was like us. We are like Elijah. He wasn't an impressive human being because he was especially righteous. He was righteous because God made him so. And it was by God's righteousness that Elijah prayed with power. That's what James also says. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It is God who made Elijah righteous and it is God who makes us righteous too. God makes us righteous in Christ. All who walk in Christ have been made righteous in Christ. Did you know that? If you believe in Jesus, you've been declared righteous, perfect in his sight. We've got as much of God's righteous, holy power flowing through us as Elijah did. 
Like Elijah, we can stop the heavens. Like Elijah, we can bring the rain. Like Elijah, we can shake the earth. Like Elijah, we can rebuke Satan. Like Elijah, we can set back armies. By ourselves, we are nothing. But by the righteousness of Christ, we can do all that and more. Elijah is not unique. He's like us. We are like him. But he does pray in a certain way. James doesn't just say that Elijah prayed. He says that Elijah prayed earnestly. What does it mean to pray earnestly? Earnestly means with depth and sincerity, with with persistence, with passion. This is what prayer requires. It requires passion. Prayer can be an agonizing experience. Prayer should be an agonizing experience. I mean, in the Old Testament, Jacob prayed all night in a literal wrestling match with God. That was his quiet time, a wrestling match with God. He only got what he needed in prayer from God after, at the end of the evening, he had pinned God down to the ground. That was his prayer time. Or when Moses was praying for the Israelites during the battle against the Amalekites, he had to have his friends hold his hands up, his arms up, because he was so exhausted from prayer. I can't do this anymore. You guys are going to have to hold my hands up. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed so hard that what did he do? He sweat blood. That's how hard he prayed. He sweat blood. This is what it means to pray earnestly, ardently. Now, is that how we pray? Our prayers can seem so trivial, right? I mean, listen to ourselves. Thanks for the food. Pray for Aunt Edna. She hurt her hip. Need a parking spot. We pray for stuff I'm not even sure we really want. Or we give up in prayer so easily. We're, we're like my kids who asked me for something they really want, and, and, and then they forget it within a couple hours. Oh, you really wanted it that bad, so bad that you forgot it, about it. Maybe what I'm saying is that prayer requires a level of desperation that many of us are not prepared for. Prayer requires a persistence that many of us might not be up for. Now, why does prayer have to be so hard like that? Why does it have to be so exhausting? Is God intentionally trying to make things difficult for us? Maybe a little. But also, prayer is a battleground. When we pray, we go up against the devil. Do you think the devil's just going to say, oh, he's praying. Okay, whatever you ask for. The devil's not just going to step aside and let us ask for what we want and get it. He's going to make us fight. He's going to make us sweat. He's going to make us hold our hands up in prayer so long that they're shaking. Now, I know that's a lot of pressure about prayer. I started this sermon with the purpose of inviting you to pray more, and I perhaps have scared you away from the task. I mean, what have I told you so far? What have I told you? I've told you that prayer is really, 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 really hard, and it might not work. Thanks, Pastor Matt. What a day. Prayer's really hard, and it might not work. I think that's true. But I also know the opposite is true, too. Prayer is actually really, really, really easy and works all the time. You don't have to be a graduate level Christian to pray. You just have to be honest enough to talk to God with other people and tell them what's going on. And as disappointed as I've been to not see God answer my prayers over the years, he has answered my prayers as often as he hasn't. He really has. God has sent me plenty of clearances to get me through some of the darkest days of my life. Finally, though, and the thing I want to leave you with is that even though prayer is a tremendous responsibility and opportunity, it's not all up to us. We're Christians, right? Who do Christians follow? 
I thought this would be obvious, but who do Christians follow? We follow Christ. And you need to know that Jesus intercedes where we can't. Jesus prays for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. I mean, before he ascended to heaven, Jesus made sure to pray to the Father on our behalf. He prayed for us. He prayed for our unity. He prayed for our holiness. He prayed for our faith. He prayed for our healing. He prayed for our churches. He prayed for our loved ones. And he's praying still. He's in the throne room advocating for us before the Father right now. Right now. However bad we are at prayer, we worship one who knows the power of prayer and is using it right now on our behalf. Now, that's not an excuse for us not to pray. Oh, Jesus is praying for me? I'm off the hook. No, that's not what that means. It means we're not on our own. It means that Jesus is taking our prayers, however clumsily we're throwing them up there, and making them his. But we got to give him something to work with. Communion reminds us of this. Communion reminds us that we don't approach the throne of God on our own strength. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. When he rose from the dead, he defeated the power of death. He gives us that victory. So we can enter God's presence with our prayers, with our requests, because of what Jesus did. And even as we stumble our way through prayer, Jesus stands beside us, letting the Father know what we need, what we want. Even as we don't know what to pray, Jesus does. Jesus is always up there in heaven, like, okay, what they're, here's what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. Jesus is really good at interpreting us. We celebrate communion on the third Sunday of the month here at Rooftop. In our understanding, communion, it's a symbolic reenactment of who we are as Christians. We are Christians What it means to be a Christian, it means to be a member of the family of God gathered around the dinner table. We are God's adopted children because of what his one and only son did on the cross. When we drink from the cup, we're reminded of what Jesus did on the cross. He poured out his sin for our sakes. When we eat from the loaf, we're reminded of his body, which is broken for us. If you would then, go ahead and take out your communion cup. Peel back the top layer, removing the wafer. Consider the words of Jesus who said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Now peel back the second layer, considering again the words of Jesus. This is the blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me.